Welcome to another episode of The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim. This episode is made possible with support from LaunchDarkly. Get total control of your code to ship quicker, reduce risk, and reclaim your nights and weekends. Head to launchdarkly.com to learn more. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. In the last episode, I interviewed Dr. Ron Westrom, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Eastern Michigan University. He developed the Westrom Organizational Typology Model, which I suspect almost everyone in the DevOps community already knows about, because that model featured so prominently in the state of DevOps research, which I had the privilege of working on for six years with Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble. In this model, he asserts there is a continuum of safety cultures that fall into three general categories, pathological, bureaucratic, and generative. Pathological organizations are characterized by large amounts of fear and threat. People often hoard information or withhold it for political reasons or distort it to make themselves look better. In bureaucratic organizations, they protect departments. Those in the department want to maintain their turf, insist on their own rules, and generally do things by the book their book. And generative organizations focus on the mission. How do we accomplish our goal? Everything is subordinated to good performance. If you haven't listened to that first interview, I recommend that you listen to it first because this is a continuation of that first interview. And by the way, I've listened to that interview numerous times because I get something new out of it each time. I guess I'm hoping by taking good notes and by repetition, I can internalize about what he talks about so eloquently. Okay, in this second interview, I get to explore with him so many topics, expounding upon the topics we discussed last time, such as why he thinks creating generative cultures is more important now than it was, say, a hundred years ago, his observations on the ever-increasing number of functional specialties and just how long that's been going on, the challenges that arise from having matrix organizations and tools to overcome those challenges. And we'll learn more about the book he's working on, which is all about information flow within organizations. As usual, I'll break in with some observations, and this time I'll also share some additional references that didn't make it into the last interview, as well as some corrections. Okay, let's start the second interview. I had told Dr. Westrom just how much I loved, uh, even adored his book, Sidewinder, Creative Missile Development at China Lake. I was telling him that when I was in elementary and junior high school, I used to pore over books on airplanes, fighter jets, and missiles. I loved reading Hunt for Red October. And so it was so amazing to read his book, to learn about these famous missile programs described in such detail and all the heroic efforts required to create them and even the failed programs that never even made it into production. So many topics in that book will seem very familiar to anyone doing software development. So let's jump into that question right now. First off, Dr. Westrom, I know that in the last conversation (laughs) that uh, we had, I told you about just how much I loved that book. I adored it even just because of how it really brought to life so many of these programs that I had uh, read about in a very cursory way. One of the things that I especially loved was the fact that you contrasted the outcomes of the wildly successful Sidewinder project versus the first Sparrow missile program and the failed Falcon missile program. And I think what resonated so deeply with me was that, you know, this Sidewinder program from 60 plus years ago 
validated so many of the key principles of Agile and DevOps, which in the case of Agile goes back, you know, yep. over 20 years. <laughs> so right. I thought that your the Sidewinder book shows how so many of those underlying principles are required to great outcomes, and it predates so much of what we think of in modern software development. So you spoke last time about the importance of generative cultures and the royal road to where it leads. It seems to me that now more than ever, generative cultures are needed in almost every domain. So can you speak to why this is the case? Why does it seem like generative <laughs> cultures are more important now than, say, 100 years ago? Well, are they? I think I'm reading a book on, it's called Seized a Fire. It's about a Lord Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar. <laughs> and basically, I think you could argue that Nelson had a generative culture. His band of brothers, that was the phrase he used worked extremely well and it worked for the same kind of reasons that generative organizations typically work you say this is needed so much more today well it's certainly true that we have a very complex civilization certainly from the studies that have been done on high reliability organizations a generative organization seems to be something that a high reliability organization needs but there have always been high reliability organizations. I mean, think about building a bridge a couple hundred years ago. <laughs> if you made a mistake, okay, there were severe consequences. So what is it about generative organizations that tend to keep you from making a mistake? And this goes to basically the heart of the sort of Westrom continuum and so forth. But it's all about basically providing an organization that uses all the information that it's got. And you need to think about that for a moment. Do you have an organization that is effective in utilizing all the information you've got? Well, obviously, in many cases, if we look at accident reports, which is what I used to spend a lot of time doing, accidents are often generated by a failure in information flow. Somebody didn't tell somebody else something, or what, it, what they told them was not accepted. But in any case, information didn't flow. Well, so generative organizations basically are based on the idea of maximum utilization of the information you've got. But it's absolutely amazing how many organizations are not like that. And obviously, one of the reasons, as far as I'm concerned, essentially, is they don't have the right kind of culture. People don't trust each other. They hoard information or they give out information which is misleading or they fail to notify somebody about something that's important and so on and so forth. It doesn't seem like it's a really deep idea, but it's amazing how many people <laughs> don't do it. And this is something that has been come up in one accident after another. In many cases, for instance, there have been previous instances of the same problem. And the takeaway from those previous accidents and so forth has not been absorbed. So what is it about generative organization that gets people to absorb things? So the simplest answer it is simply trust, okay? But trust is very difficult to build because we know in many organizations there is not a, a will to tell the truth. I mean, for instance, there was a recent study by people at the Army War College. So, for instance, they found that in regard to training, uh, the training requirements are such that nobody can possibly do them all. However, you don't want to say to your commander, hey, you know, I, I haven't done everything. The commander expects you to figure out what the important things are and to do those things. But you can't say that you haven't done the requirements because it's a bureaucratic organization. And what they discovered essentially is that the organization of the Army is such that people typically lie to the higher commanders above them. So here you've got a situation where basically people give out commands which pe other people below them can't carry out. 
And just a point of clarification, was this somewhat recent uh, yeah. in the last decade, or was this like the post-Vietnam War? I mean, the interesting thing is, and I, I meant to communicate with the guys at the at the War College, but, but basically it is a standard problem in large organizations that people issue requirements which, number one, cannot be changed, and number two, essentially ask, ask you to do something which is really, you really can't do. So what do right. you do? You know, do you lie? <laughs> yes, you lie because that seems to work. I mean, a perfect example of this was the Sidewinder guys, when they're having problems getting the, the qual shoots to work, they had a little harmonica, and the pilot blew into the harmonica. It would allow the missile to launch. And the problem, <laughs> something that was built into the system, the radio bandwidth had been made too small. And so if you had the harmonica, you could warble the harmonica, and then the missile would launch. Hi, this sounds <laughs> sounds really crude, but that actually seemed to work. Now, of course, the thing is, the people who who did this couldn't say that they'd done it because, you know, it's it's not operationally correct. But if they didn't do it, they couldn't have the qual shoot. And there's lots of things like that in organizations where, you know, unless you say that you were going to do something, you know, you you're in trouble. So you hmm. say you're not you're going to do something which you can't do, and that's why. You need to have trust because if you have trust, somebody could say, well, hey, I really can't do that. So then you don't have to do it. Then you can get through. But people don't like to do that. People don't like to say to the commanding officer, hey, you know, we couldn't do this requirement because it's required. And to concretize that, that could be training standards. It could be a process checklist. It could be, you know, requirements. Um, it could be a safety checklist. A safety checklist. Yeah. Right, that could result in putting anyone or a frontline worker in a position where they essentially have to cheat or lie or essentially represent something that is actually impossible. I mean, for instance, when the Challenger was launched, there were some 200 things that they didn't do that they had to check off, which were necessary to, in principle, to be able to launch the shuttle. So <laughs> they basically had to sign off on all these different things and so forth. Some of which were critical, and some of which, and one of which, in the end, allowed the shuttle mm. to be destroyed. But the the basic structure of many organizations is so rigid that you can't get around these things. And if you don't have a, a generative st structure which allows you some sort of bypass for whatever this is, then you're stuck. Right. You'll say say you're going to do something which you can't do. And it seems like. In this case, you're not suggesting bypass. Uh, you're actually suggesting some feedback into the process that allows the reshaping of the checklist to actually make it you know, genuinely effective in service of whatever the goal is. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. there's, there's many cases where basically you've got a bad software program. Let me take something from your realm here. You'd have a, <laughs> you have a bad software program, but there's no way to get to whoever created the program and say, you know, hey, this isn't working out for me. And quite often, if there is a sort of do this if, if it's not working for you, and you do that and it doesn't work for you, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so there's no way you can have this higher level discussion you, to comment on what's going on. Right. So when I hear bypass in my head, it goes into sort of a daily workaround or temporary workaround. And what you're suggesting is something deeper than that. The generative culture has to allow for the high fidelity information, bidirectional, that allows for creation of the appropriate checklist. Yes. I, I mean, I'll give you another example of this. One of the uh, hospital directors that I talked to said that he would often go up to nurses on various of the wards and say, what's your favorite workaround? <laughs> so 
so the nurse would then, bu- you know, bubble up and say, oh, this is what I do and so forth. And, you know, what, 50% of the time or something that the workaround was something which was not a good idea. <laughs> but the nurse had done the workaround consistently because that was the one thing that allowed her to do, you know, whatever the main operation was. And so here you have a system in which it, people have are doing things that they don't feel comfortable with, but they can't talk about it. Right. So one of the things that you have to cultivate as a leader, basically, is the willingness to listen to things that you might not want to hear. So that's all part of the issue of trust. And that's what generative organizations do. They build trust. So it allows you to make that communication. And then the other person can comment on it and say, oh, I didn't realize you were doing that. And so they can fix it. Got it. And and maybe just to connect some dots to a point that you brought up in the previous interview. You talked about one of the contributing causes and the factors that led up to the Fukushima accident was that there was an absence of understanding of a certain procedure that led to the accident. In that case, it wasn't that it was hidden. (laughs) It wasn't that someone was hiding that fact that they were uh, changing the work procedures. One can imagine in a more generative culture where there's a more wide sharing of information, that event could have been deflected. Well, yes. I think that one of the interesting features of Japanese culture is there is a tremendous uh, unwillingness to contest a point made by higher authority. In one case, for instance, one of the scientists who had been asked about how high was the, the tsunami likely to be said, essentially, it's going to be, you know, it could be 40, 40 feet high. And that wasn't a response which was considered to be acceptable. So that was left out of the report. Mm. Okay. So what happened is they planned for a, a tsunami that might be 20 feet high, and the actual tsunami was 30 feet high. So you have these situations where people know something, but that something isn't taken into consideration. It's very similar to the problem of hidden profiles that I've mentioned in another interview. And that hidden profile is when somebody basically has information that other people don't have. But simply because they're the only one that has it, they don't feel comfortable in bringing it forward. The whole idea of a generative organization is you feel comfortable telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And the truth may be something that other people may have a difficulty with, but you bring it forward anyway. But in lots of organizations, you know, there's there's rules like, A, you don't contradict the leader, mm-hmm. or B, you don't bring up unpleasant information, or C, you don't bring up information that other people don't already know. <laughs> right. So there's all these hazards to ordinary communications. And ordinary communications are responsible for a lot of the kinds of things that we see in organizations when things have to go well. Right. But if you can't communicate what you need to communicate, you know, then that information does not enter into the final solution. It seems like there's another factor at work in terms of why now versus 100 years ago, why general culture is so important. And what comes to mind is the emergence of knowledge work, where when the work doesn't involve creation of physical things, there are ways that inaccuracies will get surfaced when you try to manufacture something or you know, integrate pieces together. And that is often not present when you know dealing with knowledge work or software that are often ideas made of thought stuff <laughs> right as a famous computer scientist right. uh, once said it seems like that increases the need for high fidelity communications because unlike the physical world two things can't exist in one place so that that will reveal inaccuracies or errors whereas in in software specifically there's no physicality that will reveal the error and so that has to be made up somewhere does that resonate with you I, I think I'm getting your point. I, I think that 
the thing that I, I keep thinking of physical examples like the city core building where basically the building had been built in a different way than the original designer intended mm. and for some reason uh, that wasn't communicated and the only way that they discovered that there was a problem is that some student did a project and discovered well actually when the student asked the consultant the person who had really designed the building about this particular thing that the consultant's answer was oh yeah that we took care of that and then he had a second thought and the second thought was well maybe we didn't take care of that he said i've <laughs> got to make sure the building was built as i intended it was built so he called up the the actual builders and said well did you use welds to make the, the connections of this building and they said no we didn't we used uh, rivets so it turned out when they did some checks basically that rivets would not hold the building up against uh, a force of wind for instance it would happen every 16 years or on average so in fact the building was ready to fall apart under the right conditions and nobody had noticed it, and nobody had thought to say anything about this. And basically, here was here was something that needed to be checked, and it wasn't checked. And it was discovered by accident. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> the, the temptation in a situation where something has not happened the right way to say nothing mm -hmm. is an interesting issue. And, and in this case, the consultant was a very honest person. And having called up the builders, he said, we've got to change this. And they did change it. Although during the process of changing, they didn't tell anybody. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, but the, the thing is, is that we have to be aware that there's all sorts of pressures against telling the truth, against giving the critical pieces of information and so forth. And what generative organizations do is they help expose what uh, Jim Reason has called the latent pathogens, the things that are going to trip you up that you don't know about. And uh, unfortunately, in all the things we do in, in life, and I'm sure this is true of software as like anything else, there's all sorts of things, assumptions that get made. Right. And so you're asking, well, what is it about the 21st century that makes us all more critical? Well, the truth of the matter is, you know, we live in a complicated society. We have complicated machines. We have complicated software programs. And we need to know how things are going. And the amazing thing, of course, is that as you create all these different specialties that need to get together to make an electromechanical system work, you often get silos. Yeah. And that's, silos are one of the reasons, basically, that generative organizations are important, because they allow you to go between silos, between information, bodies of information that are kept apart. <laughs> okay? And so, the thing is, the more you have a multidisciplinary context, which all electromechanical systems generate, the more you need to have a situation where, you know, somebody can say to somebody in a different silo, hey, have you thought about this or have you checked on this and so forth? Because often people haven't or didn't. And so the thing about generative organizations is that because everybody has the same, you know, final goal in mind, they're all working on the same team, they basically can go between silos or they can ask the dumb question. And in fact, in many cases, the dumb question is what reveals that you have a serious problem that needs to be addressed. <laughs> and so that's the deal. I mean, I think what we're seeing with the vaccine rollout is a similar kind of thing, is that people have assumptions or things like that that they're really not willing to reveal. And if they don't reveal them, then you know they're not going to make a decision based on that additional knowledge that they would get if they brought up the question. 
Gene here. I wanted to break in to bring up a couple of points. First is a correction from the first interview with Dr. Restrum. He had mentioned a book called The Forge of Democracy. The correct title to that book is Freedom's Forge, How American Business Produced Victory in World War II by Arthur Herman. Uh, it is the amazing book about William Knudsen, who was at Ford and later Chrysler, who played a large role in mobilizing the U.S. wartime production effort. Without doubt, one of the largest industrial efforts, the like of which the world had never seen before. Dr. Westrom had commented that Knudsen was one of those technical maestros. Second, also in my first interview of Dr. Ron Westrom, I had mentioned several times the term CNO without defining it. CNO refers to the Chief of Naval Operations, the highest ranking officer in the U.S. Navy. Dr. Westrom mentioned Admiral Thomas Moore, who served as CNO from 1967 to 1970. He was also an experimental officer for the Sidewinder Project at China Lake. And in a strange coincidence, I had just interviewed Admiral John Richardson just a couple of weeks prior, who served as CNO from 2015 to 2019. Third, earlier in this interview, Dr. Westrom mentioned Admiral Nelson. That is Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson. According to his Wikipedia page, he lived from 1758 to 1805. Quote, his inspirational leadership, grasp of strategy, and unconventional tactics brought about a number of decisive British naval victories, particularly during the Napoleonic Wars. I think in many circles, he is most famous for his role in the Battle of Trafalgar, Reading from that Wikipedia page, the Battle of Trafalgar was a naval engagement between the British Royal Navy and the combined fleets of the French and Spanish navies during the Napoleonic Wars. In my interview with Admiral John Richardson, he spoke so much about radical delegation. There's a great quote about how Admiral Nelson had achieved this. Quote, Nelson was careful to point out that something had to be left to chance. Nothing is sure in a sea battle. So he left his captain free from all hampering rules by telling them that, quote, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy. <laughs> in short, circumstances would dictate the execution, subject to the guiding rule that the enemy's rear was to be cut off and superior force concentrated on that part of the enemy's line. All right, number four, Dr. Westrom mentioned the study done by the Army War College. So this was a paper released in 2015 called Lying to Ourselves, Dishonesty in the Army Profession by Dr. Leonard Wong and Dr. Stephen Garris. I looked that publication up and read it, and holy smokes, it is a bit uncomfortable to read. This report is an unflinching self-assessment of the culture that Dr. Westrom described. I think the best way to convey that is to read the foreword by Douglas Loveless, director of the Strategic Studies Institute and U.S. Army War College Press. He writes, quote, One of the hallmarks of a true profession is its ability to assess and regulate itself, especially with respect to adherence to its foundational ethos. Such self-examination is difficult and often causes discomfort within the profession. Nonetheless, it is absolutely necessary to enable members of the profession to render the service for which the profession exists. U.S. military professionals have never shied away from this responsibility, and they do not today as evidenced by this riveting monograph. Discussing dishonesty in the Army profession is a topic that will undoubtedly make many readers uneasy. It is, however, a concern that must be addressed to better the Army profession. 
Through extensive discussions with officers and thorough and sound analysis, Drs. Leonard Wong and Stephen Garris make a compelling argument for the Army to introspectively examine how it might be inadvertently encouraging the very behaviors it deems unacceptable. The unvarnished treatment of this sensitive topic presented by the authors hopefully will be the start of a dialogue examining this critical issue. So the two authors are both researchers. Dr. Leonard Wong is a research professor in the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. He focuses on the human and organizational dimensions of the military. He's a retired Army officer. He's a professional engineer. Dr. Stephen Garris is a professor of behavioral sciences in the Department of Command, Leadership, and Management at the U.S. Army War College, and his PhD is in industrial and organizational psychology. It is a fascinating and uh, uncomfortable read about what can happen in an organization when only certain types of information can flow upwards to senior leaders. Which gets to item number four. I want to mention a book called The Generals, American Military Command from World War II to Today by Thomas E. Ricks. This is an astonishing book that has come up several times in previous episodes. It was actually recommended to me by my friend Brian Kroger, who helped create the Kessel Run Project inside of the U.S. Air Force. I'm going to bring this book up later in the interview, but I'm going to leave two things with you now. One thing that Mr. Ricks asserts is that the best periods of the U.S. Army was likely during those periods when top generals were frequently relieved of their commands when their leadership didn't think they were performing to the necessary high standards, either by their military or their civilian leadership. His observation is that this happens far less frequently now than, say, in World War II. The second point is that Mr. Ricks observes that during the Vietnam War, generals were very infrequently relieved of command and makes a very good case that led to the conditions where the more senior the officer, the less they were trusted. I'll put a citation to this in the show notes. Which leads me to my last point, is that so much of what Dr. Westrom is talking about, about critical information flows and the need for lots of channels of information to exist, exists very much in software as well. I'm reminded of the book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, Why High-Tech Products Drive Us Crazy and How to Restore the Sanity by Alan Cooper. I remember reading this book nearly 20 years ago. It was recommended to me after one of the worst moments of my professional career. It must have been around 2004, and uh, a fellow engineer and I, we were watching a customer use our product for the very first time. Uh, We had allocated about three hours for this, and we were watching this person do what we imagined to be a pretty routine operation, and it took him 52 clicks. (laughs) And the whole time, he was apologizing. He kept saying, there must be a better way to do this. And uh, my reaction, uh, as well as my fellow engineers' uh, reaction was, uh, no, there's not, because uh, we are terrible people. This was one of the first times that any of us inside the company had actually seen how customers were using our product, and suddenly it became so clear why the job of the tripwire administrator was always given to the most junior person on the team or the newest member of the team because no one wanted to do it. <laughs> and so that those three hours was just horrifying. 
And this also led to our journey of atonement. The three of us, we vowed to fix these problems that we had inadvertently created. We went to Cooper University. So this is Alan Cooper who wrote the book, The Training Organization that he ran. This is where we learned about user personas, creating context scenarios. This is how we changed the way that we specified technology requirements. This is when we started building in customer feedback into the development process. Listening to Dr. Westrom, it is so clear to me that this outcome was a direct result of not having information flows from the customer. One of the reasons that made the Sidewander project so successful is that they had deeply studied the people who would be loading this ordinance onto airplanes, how it would be used by pilots. The absence of these practices led to bad outcomes, both in the failed Falcon missile program, as well as in the far less successful Sparrow program. In Tripwire 2004, we probably looked more like the Falcon and Sparrow program <laughs> than the Sidewinder program. Although I'd like to think that as a result of all the investments that we had made, we got much, much better at building more humane software. So to summarize, I love the way that Dr. Westrom talks about generative organizations where they create all these extra channels of information that the entire organization can use in service of the mission. And not only do we have all the information we need, we can revisit and review all our safety checklists or our requirements or the architecture that we are working within. Are they actually helping us or impeding us? And if they're impeding us, let's get rid of it and replace it with something that actually makes sense. All right, let's go back to the interview. The phrase that really leaped out at <laughs> me was silos keep information apart. And I'm wondering if that too is a factor. Is it true that over the last 100 years that siloization is becoming increasingly more prevalent, that the number of silos keep increasing? Does that resonate with you? So think about the difference between the reckoning of bridge 200 years ago and today. There's all kinds of issues that you have to come up with today. I mean, they didn't have airplanes back when, okay? So you have to think about airplanes flying into the bridge and so forth. <laughs> if you were building a building, I mean, I, my favorite example is the Crystal Palace of 1851. I mean, here was something which was really a genius building of the time, but they didn't have to put any cables in it at all. I mean, literally everything was, and there was not even a heating system in it. So by the time they built the city core building, by contrast, and certainly in today's world, you know, the number of disciplines necessary to build a modern building create silos. And obviously, if you have a union or something like that, and you have all the people in one silo in a union, then you can't... <laughs> I mean, I, this happens at, at my university, you know, it's like, I want to put a, a coat hanger on the wall. Well, I can't do that, because if I do that, I'll get in trouble, and the union will scream and so forth. And I, I mean, just to give an example, in the building where I used to work, they had a fire on the top floor of the building. So I thought, you know, because I read accident reports, I thought, you know, I, I have a copy of the accident report, okay? And I've sent this through two different chains in the bureaucracy, figuring that one of them would probably get through. No such luck. Either there isn't an accident report, which I think is not very smart, or there is an accident report that I will never see. Because <laughs> any request that I send had to go all the way up my chain and all the way down the other chain, and it doesn't work. Okay? And I mean, this is a university. This is not a you know, really complicated system, <laughs> uh, except sociologically. But the interesting thing is that, is that I can't 
you know, I can't do anything with buildings and grounds because if I did, uh, you know, bad things would happen. And yet, here in my office, the simple thing about putting a coat hook on the wall, what I eventually did is I went to the janitor, and the janitor asked for, you know, cooperation of buildings and grounds, and that's how the rack that I designed got put up on the <laughs> okay? So, you can imagine then, if you've got something like a radio system or electromechanical system that is managing drones or something like that, that's much worse, Okay. The book, The McChrystal Rule, called Team of Teams, that's what you've got. You have to have a team of teams where everybody feels that at some level they're all on the same team. But when you've got people who are doing different things and to get all these people coordinated, you know, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, the blah, 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 you know, it goes on and on. And in the construction business, basically, master contractors are supposed to solve all those problems. But as we know from building accidents and rework issues, they often don't. By the way, your example of the university system as a microcosm for this was startling to me. It seems like, in some ways, this is a low-stakes operation, right? Uh, the building facility is probably not a critical part of uh, running a successful university. Right. And yet, describing the exact same sort of characteristics that prevent the free flow of information that you describe. So in the last interview, you had the magic wand where you ran NASA. <laughs> in the, in the uh, post-Columbia Challenger era, you are now head of the university. How would you have set up the university so that the well-meaning professor can get the accident reports while preserving the smooth flow of all the critical functions that need to happen to make the university operate? Describe what that universe looks like. Well, let me describe the problem first. <laughs> the problem is that basically my university has a, a pathological aspect in the sense that they have a tremendous fear that their mistakes are going to be outed. And so what happens is that anything that could re badly reflect on the administration is something that is deeply buried. But having had that happen only made people more willing to cover up and more willing to, you know, silo off different parts of the university. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable. I mean, here's another example. I was giving a talk at General Motors many, many years ago. And so, you know, the, everything was going well and so forth, but the TV wasn't in quite, the, the thing that was doing the projection, wasn't in quite the right position. So I got up out of my chair and moved toward the television. <laughs> and about 12 people seized me and said, you can't do that, okay? Because I was about to do something that the union people were supposed to do. And so built into the organization was an inability to cross the silo thing. I had to do, I had to do this by the proper protocols. Mm -hmm. And it's so complicated that sometimes really terrible things can happen. In World War II, for instance, a General Patton realized that some paratroopers that he was about to drop were going to get shot down by the Navy gunners. But the system was so complicated that he couldn't get out to the other ships that they were about to, the paratroopers they were about to see were American paratroopers. And those paratroopers got shot down. And Patton gave up in the end trying to get the information through. Okay. Huh. Very sad instance and so forth. And there's lots of stuff like that. The military is full of catch-22s and other kinds of infelicities, let's say. But I'm not sure I'm, I responded to your original question. I think the truth is we live in a world today where it's easy to have silos. Yeah. And you think, well, hey, this is the 21st century. We're beyond that. We are not beyond that. So you are now in charge of the university. Congratulations. Can you at least describe in high-level terms, how would you organize <laughs> the organization such that the professor could get 
an accident report <laughs> in service of you know the greater good of the university. Right. Huh. If I were in charge, I would do the things that are likely to get information to flow. Number one, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Keeping promises is one of the basic things. This is not a high-level principle, but it's something that informs everything you do. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is you do things to encourage trust, because people who trust will communicate. <laughs> okay, so... You know, some positive policies essentially would be not to get, make departments compete against each other. So you don't encourage unfriendly competition. Uh, so you have to give up, along with that, penalties, you know. Well, a lot of people are not going to give up their ability to inflict damage and, and create penalties. Are you talking about like between peers, like between different schools, like uh, in the, you know, within the departments no, and I schools? That's right. I mean, I could tell you all sorts of stories. <laughs> but the other thing you said is starting with a clean slate. But you don't. That's the problem. Because the people who have been part of the problem in the past are going to hire the people who are supposed to take care of it in the future. And they are going to be enormously reluctant to hire people who are going to make them look bad. So they're not going to do it. They're going to hire people who you know, appeal to them because they recognize in those people the same sorts of dysfunctions that they have. By the way, you had mentioned discourage competition, and then we kind of mentioned the peers of like you know departments, schools. I forget what the hierarchy is, but it's, it seems like uh, you also, in order to sort of make the necessary dynamic happen in terms of like you being able to ask for accident reports, be able to hang up a coat hanger. That is not just the schools; it's also the infrastructure facilities. You know, they too need to be a part of that conversation. Otherwise, we're not going to reach that dynamic. <laughs> this is this kind of ideal yeah, well, vision. I mean, let's, let's, take, let's take a more technological example. In building the Hubble telescope mirror, yeah. the technicians decided that they didn't want to talk to the engineers because they consider the engineers sort of intrusive. So they actually, they, they literally walled themselves off and every time the engineers knocked on the door, they would turn up the music. So the consequence of this was that a very inadequate job was done of, of making the mirror perfect. So the mirror went into space in a flawed manner. Okay, I mean, the, the launch was flawless, but the mirror was damaged. I mean, it was wrongly manufactured. And the problem was that the technicians who did the manufacturing didn't realize the consequences of what they were doing because they wouldn't consult with the engineers. And this is, we see this again and again in technological accidents. One of the Japanese uh, nuclear accidents basically took place because the workforce was encouraged to experiment to make things more efficient. Mm. The problem was that the workers didn't have engineering knowledge, and they created a situation where you would have a, a, a subcritical mass or even a critical mass, and they didn't check it with the engineers. And so what happened was basically in the end, a couple people died because you had a, a radiation accident. And again and again, we see this sort of siloization and so forth. Yeah, uh, it, what it reminds me of is, I remember seeing this, I think it was a Nova episode on like supercarriers. It was like a 10-part series on you know nuclear aircraft carriers. And right. there was a specific interview that I still remember. They uh, interviewed a whole bunch of people in an aircraft carrier, like, what's your job? And I think they started with the fighter bomb pilot. Right. And, you know, my job is to deliver ordnance onto the target. And they interviewed the, the cook. And they said, my job is to feed the pilots and the crew so that we can, you know, land ordnance on targets. That everyone knew kind of what their role was in, in the greater system. Right. And what you're talking about there is, it seems like something similar. That, you know, despite the silos, there is a sense of a common mission. And yes, even the 
quote, back office infrastructure people know their place in the system and what they do is in support of it. That's right. But the other thing is that built into the structure of the aircraft carrier's functioning yes. is a willingness to always listen to the lowest man in the system, if it's, or man or, or woman, that is, mm -hmm. you know, and respond to that person. So the air boss, who is the most important person in the aviation on the carrier, is a person who will listen to anybody on the flight line who has a problem. And so what happens is that that basically they get around the silos that you would otherwise have between the people essentially arming the planes or getting the planes ready and so forth and the people who are managing the aviation itself. Because everybody realizes if you don't do this job right, either the pilot won't take off with the right equipment or the when the pilot is landing, there won't be adequate communication. And so what people have discovered about why you can have aircraft carrier landings that are safe is that everybody cooperates. Everybody's on the same page. And so literally the lowest guy on the flight line can call it a landing off if he sees something that is not right. Sort of like I think Toyota had one of these mechanisms right. in the system where the lowest guy in the line can, can pull, a, pull a plug on whatever's going on if it, something's wrong. Well, that requires an enormous amount of trust. Yes. Okay. How do you, how do you get that trust? Yeah, the and on cord, where everyone's trained to pull the and on cord and is thanked right. as a result whenever you know, they do one of the 3,500 and on cord right. pulls in a given day. So I, I love the fact that we're establishing that, yes, there are an ever-increasing number of specialties. And by the way, just for your amusement, two years ago, I learned that in hospitals, they had the hospitalist role. And even in the last couple of years, they created the nocturnist role, which is the hospitalist, but at night. <laughs> so like, I actually, you know, like, you know, within the last couple of years, uh, you know, there was actually a creation of a new role. Right. It seems like what this suggests is that the role of functional organizations is getting larger. In other words, you know, you do need a place where each one of these functional specialties can can learn their craft, can hold standards. And it seems like the challenges are increasingly around integration of those functional specialties. So in the Sidewinder book, there was this phrase that you wrote, a matrix organization inevitably generates tension between the projects and its interdisciplinary departments. Yep. Functional departments deliver expertise, project groups deliver prototypes. <laughs> and I love this one line. And both are likely to see themselves as primary. That's correct. <laughs> they did. I absolutely Love that. And then you write later, matrix organizations are inherently unstable that require utmost judgment from top management. So I was startled to see in uh, one of our earlier correspondences, you had uh, brought up Team of Teams, which you did again earlier, yes. which I think is such an amazing example of this phenomenon where you have these functional specialties that must integrate in order to achieve the mission. Can you talk about why matrix organizations are fundamentally unstable and how do we cope with that inherent instability? Ah, yes. Well, I mean, that's a good example of that is many years ago, I was told that essentially when uh, McDonnell Douglas went to a matrix organization, they had problems that they didn't really know how to solve. And this is, you know, obviously very important because it eventually became part of Boeing. <laughs> and that same culture was carried over with consequences, which I think, you know, we, we all know. So, the thing about it is, again, you know, this is a basic issue of trust. Everybody has to feel that they're on the same team. And that is very difficult to get because many things encourage you to deal with the people in your silo and to ignore basically what the consequences for the organization as a whole are likely to be. And this is especially true when you get people to compete against each other in a non-friendly way. 
which unfortunately is often what happens in organizations. And yes, and, and matrix organizations are, are very tricky. They were obviously too tricky for McDonnell Douglas, or at least this is what I was told. And the interesting thing is that you do get organizations where you can get everybody working together on the same team. And this, is, this was, in fact, the gift that Boeing had for decades and decades, is that they got everybody to feel that they were part of a family. And, you know, one can sort of write that off and say, well, gee, you know, it's just a phrase. But it isn't just a phrase. It meant something at, at Boeing. It meant that everybody would tend to work together. When you have teams that are not part of a family, however, people will work against each other. And, you know, it doesn't sort of coalesce. That fine-tuning that you need to do is not going to happen, basically, if people feel that they are at risk. And how do people feel that they're at risk? They see somebody who has management come down hard on them for something that they did. For every time that there's a heavy punishment meted out, you have a situation where people's trust is going to go down. You cannot have punishment as a regular part of everyday events and expect people to behave cooperatively. In one organization that I joined, and I won't say which one, basically there were all sorts of jokes about people taking advantage of other people. And the, the metaphor used was taking your you know, jar of petroleum jelly into the office. It's basically the metaphor that people use to describe yeah. conflicts. I, I was appalled. I mean, I, I just said, this is crazy. But that was the deal, is that everybody talked about basically being beaten up or whatever by other parts of the organization. Uh -huh. And that was how it went on a day-to-day -day basis. So you can imagine the kind of conflicts and, you know, screw-ups that this is likely to generate. I am grateful that LaunchDarkly has sponsored the DevOps Enterprise Forum for the last two years, where 60 of the best thinkers and doers I know come together for three days to create written guidance for the top problems facing this community. It's always been one of my favorite professional activities that I get to participate in. This sponsorship from LaunchDarkly makes possible the publication of this year's DevOps Enterprise Journal, where all of the hard work of this year's forum participants, as well as all the other journal authors are published. LaunchDarkly is today's leading feature management platform, empowering your teams to safely deliver and control software through feature flags. By separating code deployments from feature releases, you can deploy faster, reduce risk, and rest easy. Whether you're an established enterprise like Intuit or an SMB like Glowforge, Thousands of companies of all sizes rely on LaunchDarkly to control their entire feature lifecycle and avoid anxiety-fueled sleepless nights. Break away from stressful, nerve-wracking releases, which so many organizations face. By decoupling deployments from releases, developers are free to test in production and ship code whenever they want, even on Fridays. If there's a problem caused by a feature, a flip of a switch can disable it without the need to roll back or redeploy code. If you want to make releases, snooze fests, and start deploying more frequently and securely with less stress, head to launchdarkly.com. I trust that you are enjoying and learning as much from this interview of Dr. Ron Westrom as I am. If you are, you should know that Dr. Westrom will be presenting at the DevOps Enterprise Virtual Conference, which will be from May 17th to May 19th. I hope to see you there. Go to events.itrevolution.com slash virtual for more information. So maybe just to confirm my own understanding, I remember taking a course at MIT Sloan, and I think it was really portrayed there are really kind of three classic ways to organize. You have the cross-functional teams that are you know, uh, often characterized by being 
able to more quickly adapt to customers because they're closer to the customers. They can all independently do what the customer asks. Then on the other side, you have pure functional organizations. Uh, So instead of optimizing for speed, you're really optimizing for expertise. And then in the middle, you have these matrix organizations where you have people who have a competing set of loyalties, one to the, as you say, projects, one to their functional department. And it sounds like the emergence of this seems to be more important. Is my understanding of the kind of archetypes complete? And is it true that these kind of matrixed forms are becoming more important? Well, that's a very interesting question. I I would argue basically that the issue is not so much which one of these things you have, but what is a system that connects all these things? You know, in the original General Motors, for instance, you know, the organization was built up of five or six different automobile companies that got put together. You would think that something like that would be absolutely terrible. And in fact, I have a I have a <laughs> I have a GM organization chart from 1920. <laughs> and it's a, like a plate of spaghetti. And you think, well, how does all this manage? Well, it was managed because the person who was running GM, a guy named Durant, had the ability to get all these things to work. However, the problem was that if he was not there, and he was one of these people who was a 24-hour man, he was you know everywhere doing everything, it was not a good scheme. And in the end, basically, that plate of spaghetti was replaced by a far more functional system under Alfred P. Sloan, and General Motors actually did extremely well during the years that the Sloan structure worked. As time went on, however, there were political reasons why it was changed into something that was way more complicated, basically, so they wouldn't be broken up. And the clarity that had been under Sloan went away. And so the organization was made more complex, but the people who were running it were no longer the technological maestros. Because, see, when GM was built, basically... It, they got not only the organizations, but they got the people who were running them. So those people, the profit and loss individuals at the top, were really good. So you had an organization that was loaded with people who knew what they were doing. And this is a, <laughs> this is a very important point. Okay, so if you have an organization which is complicated and people don't know what they are doing, what do they do instead? And that explains a lot of what is wrong with Boeing. It explains a lot of what went wrong with General Motors and eventually what went wrong with NASA as well. So the thing is, is that running an organization is a very tricky business. And if you've got a large organization like Boeing, for instance, getting everybody to work together is an art. And if you have an organization where basically the the organization itself is a work of art, the last thing in the world you want to do is to have somebody who's from a, you know, a, a typical kind of hierarchical organization come in and mess around with that. And that's exactly what happened to Boeing. Is they had something that everybody tries to achieve. And then somebody says, well, you know, that's not good. We're going to do something else. (laughs) That was not a good idea. Okay. It's sort of like the problem that Southwest Airlines used to have with people who wanted to come in and find out why Southwest was so good. So the visitors would always say, okay, well, what's the gimmick? And the Southwest people would say, there isn't any gimmick. You know, we have all these practices and so forth, but you have to basically put all these practices together or it's not going to work. And so the visitors would scratch their heads and they'd be puzzled and wonder, well, why can't we do that? And the answer is because you've got to do all those things at once. And you have to have the people, the technological maestros at the top, who can get this Mm -hmm. to happen, okay? And so what happens when you try to take an organization that's a family, like 
Boeing was and turn it into something else, it is not going to work as well. And with airlines and airliners, basically, you can make some really serious mistakes because it is this very complicated thing designing a big airline. Oh, so what advice would you have to help increase the likelihood of success for matrix organizations, which are so inherently unstable and require such judgment from top management? The, the simplest thing <laughs> is when somebody's doing a good job, you don't replace them. <laughs> okay? Somebody's doing a good, good job, don't replace them. I think I mentioned Rabinow's Law. I think it's number 21 or something like that. When the boss is a dope, everybody under him is a dope or soon will be, okay? That has enormous applications when you're dealing with complicated organizations. And with Boeing, the dumbest thing they ever did is move the headquarters to Chicago, even though the engineers were in Seattle. I mean, I know this sounds awfully simplistic, but you don't do dumb things, okay? And they did, all right? And, and that's just the beginning. I mean, I could go on and so forth. But here's the deal. So if we are going to have organizations that can manage the complexity, the team of teams that you need for the 21st century, we have to study organizations that are doing it successfully. And, and basically, the people at, at, at Berkeley who studied high reliability organizations, that's what they were doing. They were trying to figure out how do you get organizations to do the impossible? Uh, they, they talked about something like almost error-free operation, which is a joke. Of course, you can't have that. But the issue is if you have errors, they have to be fixed quickly. They have to be mitigated and so forth. They have to be noticed, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the thing is, all of this is an art. So the first thing you do is you study organizations that are able to do this, and you realize that there are certain kinds of people, these technological maestros, that are essential to make the organization work perfectly. At Boeing, they lost their technological maestros. I mean, they got rid of Alan Mulally. Let me, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that will, you know, somebody would say, well, Alan Mulally wasn't that important. I think Alan Mulally was that important because he could do all this stuff. And they made a movie about it. It was called 21st Century Jet. It's a brilliant movie. Unfortunately, it was never put out in DVD form. It was only in, I think, oh, no. <laughs> videotape. Yes. So, I mean, just by doing that, some le important lessons were lost. Uh -huh. okay. And in fact, I remember, I mean, I have to admit, I hate to admit that when I make mistakes, I remember when they were doing the 777 originally, and they were going to do fewer flight tests, and I thought, that'll never work, or they're going to have all sorts of crashes, blah, 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 blah. They didn't. Why didn't they have the crashes that I thought they were going to have? And the answer is very simple. Because they paid attention to each of the details and they went through all the different procedures to make sure that everything was going to work out. So that was the organization then, which was changed into the organization that created the Dreamliner. And if you're in aviation, you know the problems the Dreamliner had. And the 737 MAX. Those were basically the creation of organizations which were inferior to the corporate culture that Boeing had possessed. That's interesting. I guess uh, what my head is filling in is a narrative that it was actually the merger acquisition of McDonnell Douglas where... That's uh, part of it, yeah. Right, that right. Uh, it was essentially a lot of their leaders who ended up on top, and that led to the right. destruction of some of the greatness that you were alluding to. Is, that, uh, uh, is there more to the story? Well, if you change the corporate culture... And they did. I mean, the, the people from MacDAC basically wanted to have a different organizational culture. And I mean, there were structural changes, too. They decided they would, they would contract out a lot more of the design of the airplane. And this was a very bad move, because the more complicated you make the structure making the airplane, the more sophisticated the management you have to have to be able to do it. 
the management that they got were not able to handle the complexity <laughs> of the new organization. And so it didn't, it didn't, you know, it's like the, the maestro that was directing the orchestra could not, you know, do the same kinds of things because they had basically lied and cheated and so forth. Uh, this is... So they chose a more complicated score, and your words said that lowering the skill level of the conductor, and that led to yeah. uh, very bad outcomes. Yeah, I, I think the thing that you need to understand is if you're building a large, complicated airliner, yeah. you need somebody who basically thinks of themselves as an or orchestra maestro, not somebody who is going to you know come in with a shovel and whack people over the head. It's almost like evoking the, the Falcon missile program, where now you're holding people to spec, right? Am I going the wrong direction? No, no, that's an interesting comparison. So the thing about the Falcon missile is you had some of the best engineers in the country yeah. in that team that built that, okay? And each of the engineers concentrated on their particular part of the missile. Right. But who was supposed to integrate all of these things and so forth? <laughs> in fact, people from the Sidewinder project would go out to Hughes Aircraft and they would come back and say, oh my God, those engineers are so smart, you know? <laughs> How can we possibly compete with them? And so Howie Wilcox, one of the Sidewinder engineers, would put his arm around Lee Jigello, who was the person who was typically going hysterical about this. And he said, he said, look, he said, first of all, all those people only get in each other's way. <laughs> Second of all, he said, we have a genius in Bill McLean who will basically figure out the answer to most problems, you know, in 10 minutes. And the third is, you know, we have a, a better design. So the Sidewinder team, which was small, was highly integrated. And they, they basically didn't make the kind of bad decisions that Hughes Aircraft made, even though Hughes had, as individuals, people mm -hmm. who were probably superior to many of the Sidewinder people, but they didn't work together as a team. Right. Uh, that's interesting. That's a, that's a very interesting thing to connect, at least a strategy of Dreamliner Maybe I'm 737 Max. This is uh, <laughs> partly speculation and so forth. I'd, I'd want to characterize it as speculation. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking off the cuff here, so... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's super great. <laughs> super insightful. Gene here. Holy cow, I loved how Dr. Westrom described and characterized the story of Boeing acquiring McDonnell Douglas. And then somehow, McDonnell Douglas replaces all of Boeing's top managers with their own leaders essentially replacing the top conductor at Boeing with one who has less skill and who has just chosen to manage a more complex score. <laughs> How heartbreaking. So Dr. Westrom had mentioned a Nova series called 21st Century Jet about the making of the 777 airliner at Boeing. The Boeing 777 program took 5,000 people and nearly five years to build. It's a five-part series. That's five hours of a documentary describing the making of the 777 airliner in an attempt to beat Airbus, which had emerged as a very fearsome competitor. It's an amazing documentary because it focuses on two main characters at Boeing. There's Alan Mulally, the project manager for this $2 billion program that is a 777, and Philip Condit, who was Boeing CEO from 1992 to 2003. The 777 project would either make or break Boeing. They chose to launch this new aircraft in 1995, which was in the middle of an economic recession when airlines were going out of business left and right. United Airline also features prominently in this story because they were their launch customer who helped underwrite some of the huge R&D costs for this program. 
There are so many things that I loved about this documentary. <laughs> it's five hours long. It's hard to know which parts to pick. I will post a YouTube link in the show notes. If anyone knows how to watch these documentaries in a way where the creators actually get paid, please let me know and I will put that revised link into the show notes as well. The first thing I'll note is this program they called, quote, working together. It was a new management method that attempted to reduce the effect of silos. Uh, it's an almost laughable name, but there's this terrific testimonial from someone who worked on the 757 and 767 program who talked about how differently the 777 program was run. Despite the extremely tight and aggressive deadlines, teams didn't throw each other underneath the bus. Instead, there was a genuine integrated problem-solving dynamic uh, that was obviously very new at Boeing. The second thing that I absolutely loved was the story of how they landed the deal with United Airlines. There's a scene where the CEO of United Airlines uh, wrote up a letter that they had the entire Boeing team sign committing that Boeing would work together with United Airlines as a partner to achieve their goals. The letter reads, Boeing 777 objective, United plus Boeing plus Pratt & Whitney. In order to launch on time a truly great airplane, we have a responsibility to work together to design, produce, and introduce an airplane that exceeds the expectation of flight crews, cabin crews, and maintenance and support teams, and ultimately our passengers and shippers. From day one, best dispatch reliability in the industry, greatest customer appeal in the industry, user-friendly and exemplary work. October 15th, 1990 in Chicago. Signed, <laughs> signed by Executive VP of Operations at United Airlines, Executive VP of uh, Boeing Commercial Air Group, Executive VP at Pratt & Whitney, and uh, Executive Vice President and General Manager of uh, something at Boeing. <laughs> this is so great. So. They show a picture of this handwritten letter that was written by the CEO of United Airlines. And there's a scene of Alan Mulally describing this epic meeting to the entire 777 team, <laughs> describing the promises they had made on behalf of uh, the 777 project. Uh, it is amazing. And Alan Mulally then describes how they brought in Phil Condit, the CEO of Boeing, and had him sign it too. <laughs> and apparently Philip Condit said, this is the new Boeing. And you can see this room full of the 777 team laughing and fully understanding the extent of the commitments that were made to United Airlines. There's a feeling of like hushed awe and nervous laughter. It's such a cool scene. And at the end of the fifth episode, they actually go through the acceptance protocols uh, of United Airlines accepting the first 777 jet. And it was actually the first jet that was accepted as is in the history of the uh, airline. <laughs> Super interesting. The third thing that I just thought was really remarkable was how Boeing won the ETOPS rating. So according to Wikipedia, ETOPS is short for Extended Range Twin Engine Operations Performance Standards. So long story short, uh, before the 777, every twin engine airliner was required to be within 120 minutes of an airport, just in case if there is an engine failure. However, in order to make the 777 work for their customers, uh, they had to figure out how to get an ETOPS rating of 180 minutes, thus vastly increasing uh, the routes that they could fly. 
What was astonishing was how Boeing worked with the regulators to satisfy their biggest concerns. They went to the most conservative groups. It was actually the airline pilot union who arguably had the most at stake. They represented the pilots who wanted to make sure that they weren't going to be flying an airplane that wouldn't be safe to fly outside of 180 minutes from an airport. So the Boeing team went to the pilot union and asked what would it take for them to be confident that they could fly with an 180-minute ETOPS limit. And they based their entire testing program around that. <laughs> and was So this wasn't someone playing fast and loose with the regulatory bodies. One couldn't interpret this as regulatory capture where the industries being regulated somehow take control of the regulatory bodies. This seemed like such an earnest way to make sure that the spirit and intent of the regulations were fully met. And they launched this incredible extended and compressed testing protocol to make sure that the plane could actually meet or exceed the standards set by uh, not only the pilots union but also uh, the FAA. To me it just demonstrated the creativity of the 777 team not just to build this incredible airplane but to make sure that uh, it satisfied all regulatory concerns. The last thing I'll mention is Alan Mulally. Dr. Western mentioned Alan Mulally as the technical maestro that made the 777 possible. From his Wikipedia page, Alan Mulally was the executive vice president of Boeing and the CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes. He began his career with Boeing as an engineer in 1969 and was largely credited with their resurgence against Airbus in the mid-2000s. In 2015, Mulally was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Following the forced resignation of CEOs Phil Condit in 2003 and Harry Stonecipher in 2005, uh, he was from McDonnell Douglas, Mulally was considered one of the leading internal candidates for the CEO position. However, when Mulally was passed over in both instances, questions were raised about whether he would remain at the company. And uh, he was then recruited to uh, join Ford as their CEO. When automotive industry analysts asked, how are you going to tackle something as complex and unfamiliar as the auto business when Ford is in such tough financial shape? Mulally responded, an automobile has about 10,000 moving parts. An airplane has 2 million parts and has to stay up in the air all the time. <laughs> Alan Mulally was widely applauded for his work at Ford. In 2006, uh, he had Ford borrow over $23.6 billion by mortgaging all of Ford's assets to, quote, provide a cushion to protect for a recession or an unexpected event. <laughs> in the 2007 financial crisis, Ford was the only one of the Detroit three that did not ask for a government loan. So Dr. Westrom is speaking at DevOps Enterprise, and his talk is on culture, and he presents an expanded version of this analysis of the culture change at Boeing, and it is absolutely fascinating. Okay, back to the interview. You said something really interesting in the last interview, and you said, when I asked you why the Sidewinder project, you said you thought there were lessons learned. In fact, you said the generative culture really came from a thought experiment about like how do R&D organizations work? What is really uh, required? Let me, let me tell you something that I didn't tell you, but which is important to understand. So where did the culture that China Lake had that led to the Sidewinder come from? And the answer is it came from World War II. In World War II, there was an organization which nobody speaks about anymore called OSRD, the Office of Scientific Research and Development. And all the laboratories of the OSRD basically had a similar kind of, of motivation. 
and a similar kind of operational code. And that code was basically very much similar to the Skunk Works that Lockheed created in developing its jet planes. And so the, the, the issue was, basically, you had people like Jack Rabineau who said, you know, it was okay to do whatever you thought was good as long as you did it on your spare time, which began at 9 a.m. in the morning and ended at 5 o'clock at night. <laughs> okay. So the deal is, is that um, OSRD had a remarkable way of doing projects so that they would be done quickly, rapidly, and that the people who knew what they were doing were given the latitude to do them that way. All of that changed after the war was over. So these same scientists and engineers who during the war had basically operated in a sort of fast and loose system, then were put back into their you know ordinary academic jobs. And the military then tried to create through bureaucracy what had happened essentially through genius. <laughs> and the, the results were that basically in the few places that OSRD norms still held, like China Lake, people were able to do these incredible things, okay? And in fact, it was in the constitutional principles of China Lake that they were able to do the same things they'd done in World War II. Mm. And by contrast, the rest of the military apparatus that acquired weapons got more and more bu bureaucratic about how they did things. And uh, that uh, China Lake people, uh, I was sitting in the historian's office one day and and she points to this whole line of books on the wall and she says see those books those are the rules that we have to follow now <laughs> she said every time we do something good they pass a rule so we can't do it again right <laughs> <laughs> a very bureaucratic response <laughs> you can't yeah i mean if you haven't studied the military procurement system this will sound exaggerated to you but it's not and the most interesting thing is actually that a big study was done by, I think, you know, Battelle or somebody called Traces, where they actually looked at the origin of weapon systems that worked. And they found that in 50% of the cases, at least, there was an illegal prototype that somebody <laughs> had broke the rules so they could do it better. Okay. <laughs> so what was the obvious thing to do, B? Well, the answer is you copy that illegal prototype system and you do more of that. But the answer the military came up with is, no, we don't want that. We don't want a hobby shop. We don't want people you know, going off on their own and doing things. We want everything to be rational and controlled. So the, <laughs> the problem was, that's not the right way to do it, okay? And, and, you, and I, I mean, I, if you've ever seen the Pentagon Wars or other movies <laughs> about you know, stuff that we acquired that we shouldn't have or didn't work or whatever, those are stories basically where they did it the company way. This is a fact of life. And so why wouldn't you do it the way that works using the smart knowledge? And this is a very important term in anthropology, smart knowledge that allowed you to do that stuff. And the answer is because the smart knowledge is not something that you can get without being very careful about the people that you hire to exercise it. It's much easier to do it the bureaucratic way because then you can do it with ordinary people. But the results you get will not be the same. Right. Because like the Lockheed Skunk Works, they can do things other people didn't do. And the reason is because they basically cut back on the rules that they needed to use to do the process and they concentrated on the outcome. You know what I found so surprising? About, uh, by the way, thanks for the illumination on that. And yet it doesn't reduce at all my surprise that you said that 
the generative characteristics came from an ideal R&D culture. So my question is, how do you bridge the world of R&D where you know, so much of the work is uncertain, often work is being done for the first time, to the world of operations? And I know that you know, you've already went there, right? You described team of teams, which is primarily in the domain of operations. So how yep, do you... Absolutely. Right, and so in the operations management world, they use the word kind of design, operate, improve. How do you kind of make the steps to go from, okay, work for R&D, it will also work in the higher tempo domain of, quote, operations? Okay, so the people who've been doing the work on high reliability organizations have bridged that gap by studying people who manage aircraft carrier landings or nuclear power operations or... Uh, in many cases, chemical process things. You had Steve come in and talk about uh, Alcoa. It's a, it's a perfect example of this, okay? Mm-hmm. So the thing about these high-reliability organizations is they do things other people don't do. And a lot of it has to do with hiring people who have the skills to be able to do things that other people can't do. And you cannot compromise on the people that you hire. And that means, by the way, that they have to be hired by people who can recognize these skills, okay? So this is why the university that I work for has such problems, because the people who typically do the hiring do not hire people who are going to make them look bad. But in many cases, it is the people who are better than you are the people you want to hire. So how do you you get people to do that? Well, that's a really good question. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I, I think... I've been reading this this book on the uh, building of the uh, Empire State Building. And so here is an, an instance of people hiring somebody who is really, really smart. This guy, Sterrett, who was the chief engineer, was an absolutely brilliant guy. So the problem is, is that, you know, when you've got people like this, Tesla, uh, what's his name? Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk. Uh-huh. So here's the guy who basically is one of these people. Are you going to manage somebody like that? How do you manage somebody like that? And the answer is you don't. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like hitching your wagon to a you know a super horse. <laughs> you know? So most of us are scared about what would happen if we we do this. But the fact is is that it's people like this who frequently develop the things that other people can't or don't or won't. So the technological maestro is a person who ought to be studied. In fact, I've often thought, you know, we ought to write a book on it because, you know, technological maestros are so important in terms of how of getting these systems to work. But they don't grow on trees. And I'm not sure how they do grow. I mean, I think this is a very interesting question. Do they teach each other, for instance? Um, they recognize each other. So really, you have to think about <laughs> if you've got people who can do the job, They'll hire other people who can do the job. But if you have people who are not going to be able to do the job, they're going to hire people who are going to make them not feel right. intimidated. Right. Ra- okay. uh, the Rabinow's Law. One of Rabinow's Laws, which <laughs> I yes, love. Absolutely. By the way, for what it's worth, the notion of technical maestro and the you know the corollaries of what happens when you have a dope at the top was one of the most astonishing, startling insights uh, yeah, I've heard in years. So, so thank you so much for that. So I'm, what I'm hearing is that um, in your mind, it was just evident what's applicable to R and D is applicable to even to high tempo operations, and and so like there was Absolutely. no um, yes. steps that you even need to manufacture to get there. Uh, so let's talk about the team of teams example. So one of the things that 
Steve and I have discussed at length, and we're st- and forgive me that I can't quite verbalize it clearly because I haven't thought through it. <laughs> I'm not able to think through it clearly, but it seems like one of the novel structures that was required to make the Team of Teams story happen was that they actually created these kind of new com- information flows uh, that allowed these kind of more mission-oriented teams to right. do their work. Um, so maybe to kind of steal the Kahneman Traversky language of thinking fast and slow. You know, at the at the highest levels, so many activities still look look the same. Objective setting, uh, resource allocation. You know, at the geography level right. or the country level, that still happened at the top. But then they seem to have created these other information flows and structures that allowed for much quicker, uh, more dynamic conversations to happen uh, at the lower levels. For example, uh, they were able to trade. Um, Air transport, yeah, to get from here to there. They're able to trade capacity on information uh, surveillance platforms. Uh, They were able to um, transact with each other, uh, whether it was you know men, materials, and so forth, or information. Um, You know, there's this kind of famous uh, daily ninety-minute phone call that happened every day, three hundred sixty-five days a year, um, where information was being shared across the organization. Very different than you would see in a in a typical hierarchical organization. Can you react to that? Does that resonate with your own experience in terms of uh, these novel structures that are created to facilitate information flow? And that this is kind of fast. These are, you know, in the same way that kind of in Traversky say, this is a f- new fast path that's activated to allow for these right. different ways of working. Well, it all depends on trust. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the kinds of things. So you have to have the confidence in yourself, basically, to subject you know, the team that you're, you're, uh, you're running to essentially the, the dominance of the important f- fact over personality, over departmental perquisites yeah. and things like that. And so th- the thing is, is that, you know, it takes somebody like McChrystal. Here's a person who um, is likely to be in a traditional organization a problem. Because he speaks his mind, you know? <laughs> and even though he's accepted essentially the military structure, and it's really astounding to to read his memoir of his experience over. So but he is a person who has absolute faith in himself. Well, if you have that faith, you have a humility toward the essentially what's going on, and. So if you if you have that that necessary humility, you can do the cooperation with other people because you don't have to win every every contest. You don't have to be the one that comes up with the idea that's the dominant idea. And this is the tremendous difference between the person who's simply a bully and the person who's a maestro. The maestro is willing to recognize the idea if somebody else has it. And Werner von Braun was exactly that kind of person. If you look at what led to are going to the moon using the lunar orbital uh, system that we got, the LOR, they call it. Right. Um, The whole thing, basically, was something that, in a sense, it was a big discussion that Werner von Braun was was managing the discussion, but he didn't have to have the right answer. All he had to do is recognize the right answer. And that requires a level of self-confidence, which many managers do not have, okay? So, I th- I think that, you know, the, the other thing, it's not surprising that eventually McChrystal got into trouble, uh, <laughs> as did David Petraeus, you know, because 
they were people who basically were able to conceive of these very complicated things and figured out how to get them to work. At the beginning of World War II, General Marshall went through the list of generals and he crossed off a lot of people because he knew they couldn't hack it. Crossed off, I think, hundreds of generals. And he said, these people will never be able to do the job. Okay. Well, how did Marshall, first of all, have the, the knowledge to do this? And all the answer is, is he'd been training these people basically for the last 20 years. And he knew everybody. So, but the other thing is basically people recognized that Marshall knew what he was doing. And that's why he went from being, I think, a brigadier general at the beginning of World War II to a four-star general at the end, because they recognized that he had these unbelievable abilities to do things that other people could not do. So I think the, you know, it would be interesting to reflect on Steve Jobs as an example of somebody like this, who both, you know, was a, a great leader of other people, but also in the end became kind of a problem for the organization. Gene here. Dr. Westrom mentioned General George C. Marshall both in this interview and in the first interview. I had asked him, what is General Marshall a maestro of? And he responded, of being a general. But after doing some research, it occurs to me that he was a maestro of much, much more. So in the book, The Generals, which I mentioned earlier by Thomas E. Ricks, the first third of the book seems to be written about General Marshall and how his work so much influenced and contributed to the U.S. victory in World War II. But then I remembered hearing this NPR Planet Money episode on the Marshall Plan. And in fact, General Marshall's impact there is maybe even bigger than in World War II. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Here's some notes I took after reviewing that transcript. So after World War II, Europe was in chaos. Over 50 million Europeans were homeless. People were starving. The entire continent was desperate for basics like wheat and milk, also coal, tractors, and railroad lines. General George Marshall wanted to retire, uh, but then is asked by President Truman to become his Secretary of State. And so the first big question is, what do you do with Germany? So I'm quoting, up until this point, America still thought of Germany as the enemy. President Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, believed that the policy should be to de-industrialize Germany, literally to, quote, turn it into pasture land and take out all of its industrial power and uh, push it out, which is what victors typically did for thousands of years. But Marshall's stance was essentially that Europe is broke, it needs help. If it doesn't get aid, things are going to get uglier. So the Marshall Plan rebuilt Germany, but that money also convinced France to let a rebuilt Germany exist. It created a Western bloc united against communism that would lead directly to the European Union. George Marshall wins the Nobel Peace Prize for this work. The Marshall Plan ultimately cost American taxpayers $13.2 billion, uh, so adjusted in today's dollars, that would be $150 billion. But that actually understates the number because our economy is so much bigger now. Quote, a better yardstick would be to compare against GDP. The Marshall Plan amounted to 5% of GDP, so that would be nearly a trillion dollars today. <laughs> the Marshall Plan wasn't just about cleaning up the ruins of a past war, it was about starting a new one. Oh, <laughs> uh, holy cow. That was an amazing NPR Planet Money episode. 
uh, for anyone interested in economics, uh, it is definitely worth listening to. And this also makes me want to read a biography of General George Marshall, not just his military background, but clearly uh, the vision that created and shaped Western Europe. To wrap this section up, I had asked Dr. Westrom last time, what was General Marshall a maestro of? <laughs> and his answer was, uh, he was a maestro at being a general, but I would claim he was actually a maestro of much, much more than that. Two more things before we return to the interview. One, General Marshall was the chief of staff of the U.S. Army. So that is the highest ranking officer in the U.S. Army. That is the service equivalent to the Chief of Naval Operations, which has come up numerous times over the last four interviews. And lastly, as much as we talk about these gifted individuals of which society owes so much to, I still believe that leadership is something that can be learned and taught. And there is a considerable body of research that supports this, such as the Transformational Leadership Instrument, which showed up in the 2015 State of DevOps research. So while there may be aspects of these technical maestros that are innate, even they cannot do it alone. So we need leaders who can combine these skills and gifts of these technical maestros with the ability to harness the full creative potential of the entire organization to achieve increasingly complex and difficult goals. Okay, with that, back to the interview. Yeah, it, it just occurred to me uh, as you were talking what those kind of structures are. Right? In fact, I'm going to read uh, the uh, the famous organizational typology model. You know, uh, these are all those things I had mentioned in the team teams context uh, are specific examples of how information is actually sought and shared. <laughs> it's specifically way these are specific ways that teams um, and functional groups bridge um, and these are mechanisms of which new ideas are injected into the organization. Uh, can you describe other mechanisms you've seen in terms of you know novel ways that these high trust, high reliability, high functioning, high performing teams work? That what are these kind of structures that don't show up <laughs> in the other ones? Well, what are the ones that delight you? If you read both of the books on the the Navy, you know it's your ship and turning the ship around and so forth, and you look at other studies which are less well-known about generative organizations, what you find is that, first of all, people tend to create a high trust level first. They will do things that let the people at the working level know that they are respected, that the management has confidence in them. And this is often in the case with, for people who in the past may not have been the best performers, okay? So it requires a tremendous, again, a tremendous level of confidence to be able to give these people the power to do essentially something that in the past they have not been very capable of doing. So creating confidence in the workforce is one of the first steps that you see in terms of creating a generative organization. Because when people have the self-confidence that comes from, A, getting better at what they do, and when they're recognized, and this is a very important principle, is that when people have organizational justice, if they do something that's good, uh, the, the people on top recognize it, okay? The worst thing in the world is to have the wrong guy given the prize for something that somebody else did because, you know, that's going to destroy the confidence of the people in the organization. So you have to be the kind of leader who listens, who goes down into the spaces where people are and finds out what they're doing, who really knows what's going on and makes decisions based on a real deep technical or socio-technical knowledge and not the sort of... <coughs> 
flair or making it up or, you know, just basically an undue pride. There was a, one of the classic things basically was a, a guy who was managing automobile companies and so forth, and he, they gave him the worst performing factory. So the first thing that he did basically is he, he created new lockers for the men and got the lockers painted and so forth. And these are the people who in the past had not been doing a very good job. But when they saw that he was interested in them, then they saw that he was willing to to give them the benefit of the doubt. They then wanted to perform for him. Yeah. And and that's you know when you get people who want to perform for the top guy or gal and so forth, that is that's fifty percent of the way right there. Okay. I and mean, there was a case where where basically one of the on a project similar to Sidewinder, they were doing this test in the middle of in the middle of the night in the desert and the wind was howling and so forth and one of the guys says you know i think the boss should be here and the guy says yeah, yeah he should be here so they called him up at home and he was like you know it's two in the morning okay and so the boss actually went out to the the place where these guys were building this missile and so forth and he worked with them until they got the thing right and after that, there was no problem with you know people lacking confidence because they knew he had confidence in them and they had confidence in him. It's building trust. And yes. that trust yep. is something that you cannot break. If you break the trust, if you don't do what you say you're going to do or if you say something that obviously is not true, you know, <laughs> yeah. that trust goes away. And can you give some concrete examples that you've seen, not from the very top, but like how the groups actually interact with each other. What are the novel things that you've seen happen kind of at these lower levels? Oh, it's, I mean, the most common thing is the the basic cooperation that people will train other people to do the stuff that they can do. Ah. So when workers cooperate to, you know, it's, it, it breaks down the walls between the workers if somebody says, well, you know, I, I, I can see a better way that you do this. I mean, there was a hospital, for instance, where that was the, the basis of their improving their ability to do cardiac surgery. They had, they had a cardiac surgery rate that was okay, but they knew they could do better. So they would meet every week with the numbers of, you know, surgeries on how many people survived, how many people didn't survive, and so forth. And every week they would sit down with the numbers and they would go over this stuff and so forth. And surgeons would go and watch other surgeons operate to learn better techniques from the people around them, okay? Well, it takes a lot of self-confidence and it takes a lot of cooperation to get to the point where you're willing to learn from other surgeons because usually surgeons don't like to have other surgeons reflect on what they're doing. <laughs> Right, but when somebody is really doing something well, then that's of course something that you should emulate. You should do yourself. And the, the interesting thing is that every every week they had to go down with these numbers and look at how people actually made out. Yeah. And they used and, and not everybody could handle it. Some of the surgeons left. They didn't want to be judged by other people. Right. <laughs> when, you're in a, when you're in a confident situation and you say, "Okay, well, clearly, you know, Bill is doing something I can't do. I need to learn that." But what I loved about the the surgeon sample was that it didn't involve the boss. It was about something that was happening between the surgeon ranks. Is there another sort of novel practice that you see kind of emerging from within the front lines? Well, how does how does how do you get things that happen on the front lines that are good to be? shared with the rest of the organization. That's a leadership issue, okay? Yeah. Because when you've got something good, then you want to share it. Yeah. Now, by contrast, I, you always have to have the image of the pathological organization here. <laughs> yeah. By contrast, if you've got somebody who's a Cinderella or you've got a team that's a Cinderella team, you're going to crush them. 
I'm sorry. And Cinderella team, by that you mean? So basically, the thing about Cinderella is nobody likes Cinderella because she makes everybody else look bad, right? <laughs> right. All right. So if you've got yeah. a team, I mean, here's the, the, the perfect example is this guy who, would, who, who taught these kids in high school calculus. I can't remember what his name was. Oh, yeah. uh, It was a stand-up-and-deliver person. Stand-up-and-deliver. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, that guy was hated by the rest of the school (laughs) district. He made everybody look bad, okay? So there's always two possibilities for a reaction. One reaction is, okay, he's doing it great, so I want to do what he does. The other reaction is he's doing it great, and he's really a problem for the rest of us. Mm, That's the Cinderella syndrome, okay? So China Lake was like that. They would make other people look bad because they they were high performers. So rather than duplicating China Lake, is that basically the whole system thought these people are out of control, okay? (laughs) Yes. So we've got to bring them into you know we've got to you know put them back in their place. Well, the truth is when you've got people like this. It's like, you know, it's man- you're managing a, a stallion. <laughs> right. You can either let them run or you're going to cripple them. Right. So a lot of people feel, well, you know, if that stallion is going to make me look bad, I'm not going to go along with that. Love I'm it. Gonna, uh, and that, by the way, that was an interesting example that you gave of the stand-up and deliver. Even in there, you could see a totally different dynamic within that classroom than you would have seen in, you know, the more traditional classroom setting. That is fantastic. So last time, you mentioned that you're working on a new book about information flow. Can you tell yes. us why you're working on that book and what areas <laughs> are you pursuing? I just, we ran out of time last time. And I can't, it's like, oh, you know, I, all right. In a, in a few words, basically, what I do is I go through a series of case studies of pathological, bureaucratic, and generative organizations. And so the thing is, is that you'd like to say, well, hey, all pathological organizations are alike. You can generalize and so forth and all bureaucratic organizations are like and so forth. It's not that simple. Is that what you've got is a family of different responses that turn out to be pathological or generative or bureaucratic. And so what I do is I, I look at some examples in detail. For instance, in the generative area, I look at Southwest Airlines, which everybody would recognize as a generative organization. And I look at the Mayo Clinic. Okay. So the Mayo Clinic is one of these things where you thought, oh my God, this is, you know, this is so, you know, praise to the sky so it can't be that good so the more you get into it you, the more you realize it is that good okay so what is it that makes it that good well fortunately the mayo clinic has a book on you know lessons from the mayo clinic and you know so forth but the truth is is that most organizations are not going to do it for the same reason that the people go to southwest and they say well this is fantastic what's the gimmick and the bad news is there is no gimmick you've got to go through all the stuff that we go through otherwise you're not going to get an organization that performs like we do so the thing is, you can have any number of visitors and so forth, and it's it's amazing how people go to Mayo Clinic and they come back and they're it's like they got religion. Okay, well, why why would they not? <laughs> it, is, right. it is done really well. I'm sure the thing the same thing is true of the Cleveland Clinic and so forth. I know less about it, and there doesn't it doesn't have the biographers and historians <laughs> that Mayo does, but um, but that's the deal. So. And by the same token, there are things that typically are pathological. We see lots of examples. I'm not going to go through them at the moment because we can't go into them in detail. <clears throat> but suffice it to say, you've got organizations where you have bosses who basically make people feel terrible. Mm. You know, I, I, I learned about them originally because one of my students said that his father used to go to work at such and such a place, right. and he would get sick on the way to work. That's a pathological organization. Mm-hmm. By the same token... 
you have bureaucratic organizations where everything is basically done by the book or somebody's book. And it's perfectly okay for certain applications. A bureaucracy is a good response. I mean, if you look at the vaccine rollout thing and so forth, in many cases, you've got really good bureaucracies. If you look at the recent um, presidential election we had, the fact is, is that basically bureaucratic organizations were the people who made that organization work because they did it, you know, by the book. Well, the truth is there's lots of things that you can do by the book. Are you talking about the execution yeah. of the votes count? Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. So, I mean, so here were ordinary people, and I emphasize yes. this, ordinary people, but they did the right thing. They did it by the numbers and so forth, yeah. and, and that worked, okay? And it, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that obviously some people don't believe that it worked, and they're convinced <laughs> that there was some sort of hanky-panky and so forth, even though there's no evidence that there was any hanky-panky. Yeah. And so why are you writing this book? I want to understand this stuff better. Uh-huh. And by writing a book, you can't just you know give a few examples. You've got to get in there and <laughs> look at the principle. How does it work? Does it always work this way? And so on and so forth. And that's the deal, is that when I write the book, basically, I'm educating myself as much as anybody else. Uh-huh. Because I, will f- I know in the process of doing this, I will find out things that I didn't suspect. I mean, somehow in looking at the Boeing stuff, this word family keeps coming up for the Boeing organization that worked. Okay, this is not an accident. This is a, yeah. the, the the fact that people experienced it as a family was what it, the trust was what allowed it to do the things it did. Okay, and the destruction of that family culture was exactly the thing that has basically put Boeing in the crosshairs of everybody at the moment. Yeah, by the way, I, I, that resonates with me so much in terms of like why a book <laughs> to learn. What is another surprise that genuinely surprised you as you delved more deeply into uh, these specific examples or the generative? Well, I, I think that the thing that astonished me the most, essentially, was realizing that places like China Lake were not necessarily created by accident. I mean, China Lake borrowed a culture that had worked in World War II. Yeah. And the organization went out of its way to maintain that culture in peacetime. So here's, here's an important point, is that a lot of times these things aren't some mysterious. I, this is, I think, what Tom Peters' great mistake was. is that he always <laughs> saw that the high performers were people who sort of did things in a weird and different way and so forth. But the thing is, Peters should have known better than that because it was from Peters that I learned about the study on Navy captains, which showed that typically the captains who were the top people in the surface fleet all tended to practice in a very similar way. Not the same way, but very similar way. And so Peter should have taken that and said, okay, look, here's the answer. <laughs> the answer is basically there is there are commonalities. Um, but but he never got to that point. It was like, you know, it was always like everybody was doing something that was typically different and you couldn't copy it and so forth. The fact is you can copy it. That's the deal. Is that there's things that are there are common principle. It is to find those common principles that I'm writing this book. Oh, that's awesome. And maybe just to forgive Tom Peters, one of the giants on whose shoulders so much other work was based upon, right? So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, very good. I want to make sure I convey this. And so I, we've now spent probably five plus hours together and it's just <laughs> amazing listening to these recordings. And it is as dazzling listening to the recordings as it is talking with you. So uh, hopefully that uh, conveys uh, to what extent I'm just truly enjoying every interaction we have and as well as how much I'm learning from it. Oh, it's great. I, I think DevOps has done a wonderful job of uh, pursuing this stuff. 
Wonderful. Anything I can do for you in the meantime? You have, you have, Gene. <laughs> uh, what exactly is that, if, I, if you don't mind me asking? Well, DevOps took the, my idea seriously, and they put them into effect. And I think that the Puppet Labs thing is a perfect example of that. Um, I think this is the first serious empirical test of <laughs> my ideas. I'm delighted to know that they worked out. <laughs> it doesn't always it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, the funny thing about theorists, by the way, this is a, this is an interesting insight. Gene here. Oh no, I lost a little piece of that recording. <laughs> we had a we had a hilarious discussion about uh, the theorists and the experimentalists, uh, the people who do theory building uh, versus those who do the work of theory testing. I can't wait to tell Dr. Nicole Forsgren about just how much fun we had uh, talking about that. Okay, back to the interview where I ask Dr. Westrom how people can reach him and what in particular he would love people to reach out to him about. Dr. Westrom, I cannot overstate how much I've learned in these two interviews. Uh, how can people reach you and what do you want people to reach you about? Well, the interesting thing is that, is that I've been reached by people in India, for instance, who were interested in things that were happening there. I've been reached by people in Japan. And basically, it's just, you know... Write me at EMU or Eastern Michigan University or, you know, using my site on Facebook and so forth. I'm happy to talk to people who have an example that they think is really good. And I've learned, by the way, about many of the things that I talk about by other people saying, well, you need to look at this and you need to look at that. And so it was my students that told me about the, the Benfold and uh, told me about China Lake and so forth. <clears throat> And I remember in the in both cases, I originally said, "Oh, I I don't believe that. That's that sounds like BS <laughs> to me." And it wasn't until I read it myself that I realized that, "Hey, this is pretty interesting to look at." And it was. Is there any specific help that you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is that if if people are using these things and finding that they're working, that's great. If they think the generative stuff isn't working for them, I'd like to know why. I mean, this is a it's a, it's a problem not having good critics, and I think. That's one of the things. If people, you know, if people have a problem with it, I'd like to know. I mean, I'd like, I'd like to know. Hey, you know, funny thing is that I often find the reverse, and and people are delighted to know that there are generative organizations. Because if if you've been only in pathological organizations and you figure it always has to be that way, <laughs> you know, there's good news. It doesn't have to be that way. I hope you learned as much as I did in this interview. So you may have noticed that Dr. Westrom kept bringing up the COVID vaccination rollout. What's amazing is that I've gotten a chance to research this area with him, along with Dr. Steven Spear, Dr. Nicole Forsgren, and others. I can't wait to share more about this when we are a little further along. But I can share some of what I've learned so far, because on the next episode, I interview Trent Green, Chief Operating Officer of Legacy Health, a $2 billion integrated delivery health system based here in Portland, Oregon, who gave me an amazing three-hour tour of the vaccination center at the Portland Convention Center, where they are doing over 8,000 vaccinations per day, up from 2,000 per day in January. It is the most amazing example of how human creativity has been unleashed in service of the most important societal mission right now, which is vaccinating everyone on the planet in the shortest amount of time. Joining me on that interview will be Dr. Steven Spear, and we learn about how these incredible improvements were made in the vaccination rollout, why these improvements have been typically so difficult in the healthcare setting, 
how these problems very much match to the problems of integrated problem solving using slow structures and fast structures, and how lessons from the COVID vaccination rollout can potentially inform improving the entire healthcare delivery system. It's such an amazing interview, and I can't wait to share it with you. So see you then.